Last week we um, we talked about the cosmos, um, how unimaginably large the universe is that our God oversees. Um, we talked about how inconceivably small we are in comparison, um, and the things that tend to really, really matter to us when we think about them in the scale of the universe are absolutely tiny. The, the, even the big names in history. Alexander the Great, Attila the Hun, Charlemagne, FDR, you know, Mahones, those guys, the big names that do great things, you know. Um, uh, you know, when you back up far enough into the universe, it's, it's hard to imagine that those really have any significance at all. And how laughably small uh, they seem from the perspective of of everything else that we're on this tiny little planet that circles this completely average sun that's one in a hundred billion stars in a completely average galaxy that's one in a hundred billion galaxies in the known universe. It's hard to imagine the things that seem really big to us are actually that big at all. And uh, we also talked about the fact that any value we do have in that size universe has to come from God. That it, 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 uh, Without God, if we don't have God, we're just this meaningless life form floating around in space. That the reason we mean something in all of this size is because God says that we do. And humanists have been lying to us for generations. We talked about this last week. That they think that in order to fully realize what it means to be a human, to fully reach your human potential, you have to shake off God and religion. And, uh, and if we do that, we're just another... Um, another life form that sprung up in this gigantic cosmos and we have no meaning whatsoever. So our meaning comes from God. David said, uh, actually, I forgot to change my uh, title slide. Now I think about it. That was last week. But David said it this way in Psalms 8. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet... You made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. David's saying that we have no glory, no kavod we talked about, which means weight, real uh, weight or importance. You have no weight at all. And yet he gave us weight. He gave us honor by saying, you are my chosen ones. If we don't see our value coming from God, we have nowhere else to find it. And this also changes the things that matter to us. Because if human beings in this vast cosmos are what matter to God, then that has to be what matters to us. Um, The things that we think are important, amassing wealth, amassing power, building huge organizations, um, impressing the right kind of people, constantly getting smarter and smarter and smarter. uh, Those things, not that any of those things are bad, but if they don't have people at their base, if, if, if it's not about people then we're just, Solomon said it, it's just like chasing after the wind. It's just, uh, it's just meaningless in this cosmos. So none of those things are bad. We should amass great wealth and then use it to bless people. We should build huge organizations and then build them to bless people. We should get smarter and smarter and smarter and use it to teach and bless people. But people, God has for some reason chosen to put people at the center of his thoughts in this giant universe. And if they're not at the center of our thoughts as well, somehow we're missing God. Well, this week we're going to zoom back in. In fact, we're going to zoom way, way, way back in because we're actually going to go inside David a little bit. And as we start to discuss kind of what this Jewish kid is made of, 
Um, so would you do me a favor and, and stand for the reading of God's word? It shouldn't be a long one. Let's stand in reverence for God's word. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp. Whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you, you will, uh, he will play soothing music and you will soon be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of these servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war. He has good judgment, but he's also a fine-looking young man. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son David, the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread, and a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled him, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And by the way, if your wife's upset with you and you look at her and go, I think a tormenting spirit of the Lord is upon you, it does not go well. So don't try that. Um, When I was in high school, and I have to preface this little story by saying that my wife swears if she had known me in high school, we never would have wound up together. So keep that in mind. Um, I I was a jock. I was a very typical jock. I played football. I also played basketball and baseball, but football was my main sport. It was what kind of drove me. And I was a pretty natural leader on the field, and so I was captain of the team my junior and senior year. Um, And my freshman year in high school, and up almost to my sophomore year in high school, I fought a lot. Um, I ran with a crowd, and that's just what you did. You fought a lot. To this day, I can't remember a single thing we actually fought about, what was so important that we thought punching another human in the face was the best way to handle it. But it's just, it's what we did. I'm assuming it was like a sport, because we did it every weekend, like, who are we going to fight this weekend? Like, it was a, just a thing you did, and then, and uh, that's just what we did. So I grew up uh, in a fairly small town where sports and fighting were pretty big deals, and so I was a popular kid. I was one of the popular kids, and looking back, it seems crazy that that's a way to acquire popularity, is to knock people down on the football field and knock them out on the weekends, and that's what makes you popular, but back then it was a pretty big deal, and so that's what I did. So you can imagine my surprise when my mom bought me a guitar for my, my sophomore year, my birthday, and told me she would get me music lessons. Like, and that's the way they sounded to me back then, music lessons. Like, I couldn't even dream of, uh, of taking music lessons. Then my mom, what I pictured was like me dressing a leotard taking dance lessons. Like, that's what, that's what came to mind when I thought of, stop trying to picture it. It's not. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's what I pictured when I pictured music lessons. Like, that's what the nerds do, right? And uh, and to my credit, I listened to mostly big hair bands back then. And so everybody that I thought of musically were wearing leotards and, and, and makeup. And so none of that suited me. And so I couldn't imagine. And they all weighed like 120 pounds. Like, I didn't, I didn't know country music back then that you could be tough, you know, like Russell Cattle and play music. Like, I didn't get that back then. Um, so music was not even in my world unless it was like the theme to the Rocky movies while you were punching somebody. Then 
music was okay, but I couldn't imagine myself ever taking uh, music lessons. And then, of course, as soon as I got into Bible college, I sat in my first um, prayer meeting, or I think it was a Bible study, and somebody whipped out a guitar, and we were singing worship songs to a guitar. I went out that week and bought a guitar, and I was kicking myself for not taking music lessons, because I wound up selling the guitar and buying a Nintendo. How, how absolutely ridiculous was that? Like the original Nintendo at a pawn shop. Um, so yeah, as a 19-year-old wishing I knew how to play guitar, I wish I could go back three years and take those music lessons, but at the time, I didn't. If I'd known my Bible in those days, I would have read about David. Um, and I would, I would have realized that there are people who can both be artistic and musical and still um, kick butt. And then I would have, you know, fought on the weekends and gone home and written a song about it. But um, tonight's passage is the first time we see David after his anointing. And uh, in the strange irony um, that's kind of out of this world, so out of this world, only God could orchestrate it. Samuel shows up, basically tells him you're going to be the next king of Israel. And in those days, royalty was handed down by bloodline. And so, or it was either handed down by bloodline or you had to be overthrown by another king. And so for Samuel to show up and say, you're going to be the next king, it's basically predicting you are going to overthrow the king. Like you're going to be the one who breaks this dynasty and takes over in its place. That's scene one. Scene two is the king is hiring him to work, not just like in his government, but in his bedroom playing music for him. So it's this weird twist of, of, uh, of fate that only God would write. God or George R.R. R. Martin. No Game of Thrones fans, really. Not one. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> next time, uh, next time we see David, which is kind of funny, this, uh, this, um, so this story, David gets hired to be a minstrel. He's hired to, to play guitar for the king. Um, they say harp, but they, uh, historically it would have been, um, sheep's gut stretched over a bowed board. It would have looked, um, more like a, what do they call it, a lute or something, but it would have looked closer to what we know of as a guitar than what we know of as the big, like, harp that we would have had. But, um, he gets basically hired to play guitar. For the king and to, to kind of be sensitive to the king's moods and play soothing music so the king will calm down. That's the first scene we see him. The very next time we see him, he's fighting Goliath. So we have two stories kind of back to back. If you're um, most of us are pretty familiar with the Goliath story, but um, uh, but he he walks up uh, taking a snack to his brothers who are in the army. And this giant is. Basically, bad-mouthing Israel and the, armor, and the armies of God. And David in his zeal says, who in the world talks about God that way? Let me add him. Uh, and we could preach a hundred sermons on this. There's so much in this chapter. But David ultimately goes out and conquers Goliath. They, they let him go out. He's got nothing but a sling. And we kind of act like it's nothing but a sling. But this was actually um, a part of the armies back then. Uh, we have uh, the artillery, you know, back then it was the archers. Um, that far back, they actually had groups they called slingers that were, there was a whole group of guys that would go out with slingshots and it was a, a pretty well-known thing. So David would probably saw himself as a future slinger and was probably practicing um, the way you might practice with a bow if you want to join the army and be an archer. Um, it was a recognized weapon. And so it wasn't just like he happened to have, you know, his little thing he liked to kill frogs with and pulled it out and killed a giant. He was probably well-trained with this thing. 
But he's obviously fighting a nine foot man of war and he's and he's, you know, a slinger. And so he takes his stone out, and knocks Goliath down and kills him. Um, and like I say, we can spend all summer on this because a lot of stuff happens here. And David shows a lot of heart. There's so many metaphors uh, in this chapter. But what I want to do tonight is kind of look at these two stories together, kind of contrast this uh, this kid who is a minstrel who plays soothing music for a king who's having basically emotional breakdowns and this zealous killer. The It almost seems like David has a divided nature. As the royal minster, he would have been an artist, a performer. Um, David turned, would have been tuned into Saul's kind of emotional makeup and his moods, and he would have used his art um, to tenderly minister to the king. And this shows a particular kind of emotional makeup in David that he had an artist's personality. He had um, that kind of emotional feel that he could bring out in music. And then one story later, he's almost bloodthirsty in the way he steps up to fight Goliath. He just dives. He hears God being you know, slandered, and he dives in to this life-or-death battle. Um, David is a warrior, and he's a worshiper. He's a soldier and a songwriter. He both killed and composed. And what makes David one of the most unique figures in history is that we get to see these contradictions brought out in his art. We get to see these two natures show up. But quick survey before we go on. How many people have ever killed an animal and cut it open and gutted it? Oh, yeah, a few. <laughs> Carrie, raise your hand. Right on. Um, so some of us, okay, how many of us... Uh, how many of us have ever taken a live animal in our hands and slit its throat as to bleed it out so that you could skin it and eat it? Anybody? You've done that? I've done it once. Yeah, so fewer. Right. Um, for many of us, it's hard to imagine a time when you couldn't eat if you didn't kill and slaughter. Like, it's, it's hard to picture those days, but it's really not that far back. And if killing our food seems a little barbaric and and uh, kind of old-fashioned. Um, imagine David in, in, in his time and place. Because if you skip the fact that he volunteered to fight Goliath, and you skip the, the banter that happened beforehand, uh, and if you skip the, his acumen with a slingshot that he was able to hit this guy square in the center of the forehead, as soon as Goliath fell, David ran up, grabs his sword, and it says he killed Goliath, then he cut his head off. Like David hacks Goliath's head off. And those are two things. He didn't cut his head off to kill him. It says he killed him, then cut his head off. I've never personally cut anyone's head off. Like I've, I would have a hard time with someone who has cut someone else's head off unless they had severe PTSD. They had no choice and, and had to do it. But David did it. And it wasn't like it was a necessity, by the way the story tells. He had already killed Goliath. So really the only reason, I can understand killing him. You hit him with a rock, you don't know if it knocked him out or killed him, so you got to run up and finish the job. I get that. But the only reason to cut someone's head off is to pick it up and show it to the opposing army. To pick it up and do the victory thing. I just took this other human being's head. And this is the same guy that plays music to soothe a worked up king. 
he cut the living, or not the living, he cut the head off a human being. So before we see David as this, you know, passionate musical minstrel, we got to remember he was also a brutal killer. But also before we see him as this like sociopath, you know, we have to recognize that he was also the minstrel. So David represents this, probably not the kid that you're like, man, I wish we, you know, we have a tendency to think of David stepping up for God with Goliath, you know, and we're like, man, we need a youth group full of kids like David. They're passionate about God. Now, I don't know if that's true. Like David, I mean, David was a little bit brutal, but he's also the man that wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. One of the things that we have to come to grips with in the life of David and in the Psalms that he wrote is that he is fully human. David is fully and completely human. Reading David is almost like having kids uh, where you don't know which one you're going to get that day. Uh, Esther sent me this picture this week. Whoops. That's Obi and Asher. She sent me a picture. She was like, they were just laying in bed singing to each other. Which is the sweetest thing in the world. Except what you can't see is that Obi has a huge bruise on his back where Asher bit him the day before. Like so hard he almost drew blood. Like they were fighting so viciously. But that's, that's humanity, right? I mean, I would love to tell you I'm a good enough parent that all my kids lay around and sing together and it's awesome. But I'm pretty sure Asher tried to eat him the day before. And that's, and that's what being a parent means. It means, and being a human means, it means Sitting down to sing songs with the person you just tried to eat. But more than anything else tonight, what I hope to do is not just look at the dramatically different sides of David, um, but hopefully bring them together in one fully integrated human. And then maybe use that as a model for what we might aspire to. So the text that we read tonight wraps up with this. It says, one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He's also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So David's a musician. He's brave. He's skilled at battle. Very wise for his age. Well put together. And the capstone is the Lord is with him. And what I love about this assessment is that um, it happens at the very beginning of David's story, really before he's had much chance to prove himself. Most of the stories we consider to be David's couldn't have built into this reputation because he's got this reputation when he shows up in our Bible. So he's doing something to get that people know he's a pretty amazing person. Um, you'll, and we're going to read probably through the summer, but if not, anytime you read David's stories, you're going to read all of these characteristics continue to show up. We're going to see his bravery. And we saw, we talked about a little bit tonight, as he shows up and fights Goliath with nothing but a sling. We're going to talk about his skill in battle. There was a time when, uh, you want to talk about gruesome, uh, there was a time when to pay a bride price, he had to kill a thousand Philistines. And it wasn't just that you had to kill a thousand, thousand Philistines, you had to bring a thousand Philistine foreskins back to the king so he could marry his daughter. So not only did he kill him, I guess he had a little impromptu surgery afterwards a thousand times over. But but obviously a skilled warrior, skilled at battle, if he managed to make it through a thousand enemy soldiers. We see his unnatural sense of wisdom as he squats in a cave and, 
he's running from Saul who wants to kill him. And Saul comes in to use the restroom in that very cave. It's dark. Saul doesn't know he's in there. He's got the man who is trying to kill him in his grips. Everybody wanted David to do it. His own men were like, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. And David knows it and he sneaks up to do the job and he realizes this is the guy God has chosen to be king. I can't kill him. God chose him for this position. So he cuts off the corner of his robe so that he could show Saul, hey, um, I could have killed you. Look what I did. I was this close to you. And what's amazing is uh, I read commentaries from a couple of historians and, and uh, uh, kind of political tactician type guys. And they said that this was probably the wisest move, uh, like political move, David makes in his entire career. Because whatever Saul's been trying to do to him, the nation knows Saul is the king. If David kills him in, in this moment, he has just since split the nation. He's the guy who, who overthrew the king by killing him in cold blood in a cave. David is able to consolidate the kingdom when he becomes king in a way that was unheard of. And it was because Saul falls in battle to some Philistines. When Saul finally dies, it's actually kind of anticlimactic. It kind of comes out of nowhere. The Philistines attack here, the Israelites went in, and Saul was killed in battle. You have this huge drama where Saul and David, Saul's chasing him all over the countryside. David's barely getting away. They have all these conflicts. Saul's killing other people because they helped David. Blah, blah, blah. And then out of nowhere, Saul just dies. And it's not even part of the story. But because David was patient and waited, the whole nation just rallied to him. Like, now what are we going to do? The whole royal succession's gone. Well, David's been defending us all this time. They all just came to David. He was able to consolidate the kingdom. Crazy wise for a kid that age. We're also going to read about how David uses his attractiveness almost over and over and over again to get the people who God has called him to lead to like him. All of the, all of the traits that this guy points out, David uses throughout his entire thing. This assessment that Saul's officer gives of David represents a complex and multifaceted human. But it actually goes even deeper than that. Because these traits that he seems to have also kind of come and go. They, they, we see moments where these traits even fail him. He seems to be this brave warrior, but there's a time when Saul's chasing him. He actually escapes Saul, but he gets so afraid. He's like, one of these days he's going to catch me and, and kill me. And he gets so afraid he flees to the enemy's land. He lives with the Philistines for a few years. He just leaves his own people and leaves Israel and lives with the Philistines because he's so afraid because it's basically this bravery that he has fails him. We're also going to read where his battlefield field skills are used for the wrong thing. He, he makes a battle plan that gets Uriah killed because he wants to marry Uriah's wife. And so using his skill at battle, he sins greatly and murders somebody. He sends the men to just the right place to make sure Uriah is killed. We see his wisdom fail as he takes the census. He wants to brag about how many people he's king over. And so he takes the census. And Joab, who's kind of the buddy he gets in trouble with, whenever he wants to do something wrong, he calls Joab. When he wants to kill Uriah, he sends a letter to Joab. Hey, hook me up here, man. I need some help. And he reaches out to Joab. And Joab goes, dude, you don't want to do this census. Like, I hope you're king over ten times more people, but don't do this. When your bad friends are telling you not to do something, you should totally listen. Like when your good friends tell you not to do something, pray about it. But when your bad friends tell you not to do something, definitely don't do it because that's got to be bad 
if Joab's even saying this is too bad. This is too bad, man. But Joab tells him not to do it. And his wisdom fails him and he does it anyway. And the nation pays for it. We'll also see his great appearance get him in trouble as he spots Bathsheba over a rooftop. And the two of them get together and set off a whole chain of sins. So in each of David's characteristics, they seem to be situational. They come and go. Good one day, bad another. David does things right and his character gets the credit for it. And then he does things that are not so right. The same man with the same character fails mightily. And for this study, what's important to note is that all of this shows up in his art. The most beautiful thing about David is you can't criticize him because he criticized himself. Like, he put it all on paper so we can see it all. We get to see him repent from his great failures. Nobody was harder on David than David was. So I feel okay sitting here criticizing David because I'm just following his lead. The same David who writes this, The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need, or as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hungry and the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He's filled with kindness. I have noticed since we've started kind of posting Psalms on social media, the Psalms that kind of jump out at us as we're reading through Psalms, this is the kind that everybody posts. This is the kind we put on social media, the kind that we, that we love. The hard thing to swallow though is that the same guy that wrote those words wrote these. Oh Lord, hear me as I pray. Pay attention to my groaning. Listen to my cry for help. My King and my God, for I pray to no one but you. Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning, I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. So, so far, so good. He starts off great. Oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence. For you hate all who do evil. You will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. Because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. Psalm starts out nice, but then it falls into what seems to be pretty extreme judgmentalism and almost self-righteousness. And none of us are posting these on Facebook. And I would probably be worried if we were. I'd probably be, the imprecatory Psalms I know are great and they have a place, but they make us uncomfortable. But the problem is this. One of our core tenets at Open Table is authenticity. I think if we're honest, we know as a church we stand no chance of always being right. And so our hopes, therefore, are at least to always be real. If we can't always be right, let's at least always be real. And this isn't completely unique. Authenticity is a buzzword in our culture right now, which I think can actually um, make it tougher because once it's cool to be authentic, then you'll fake authenticity to be cool. So I think we have to be careful with authenticity because it's become the new thing. But the Christian culture has fought against authenticity for years. 
we've genuinely traded acceptance, real acceptance, where you love somebody, who they are, where they are, for fitting in. That's kind of what we, we've traded to. So to be accepted, there's this small list, fairly easy list, but a small list of do's and don'ts, things you have to kind of agree to. You don't have to go crazy or anything. You don't have to sell all that you have and give to the poor to follow me. We don't have to get nuts. But we've got a list of things that you do and don't do if you want to fit fit in. Just a few things to change about yourself and you'll be fine. So we trade our authenticity for fitting in, which is always dangerous because fitting in feels really good. It's a very dangerous drug because there's nothing like that feeling of fitting in. The second you kind of change a little bit of who you are and and suddenly you notice you're on the inside, you're accepted, you're loved, like everybody thinks you're great, that is a great and wonderful feeling. The only danger of it is you know that if you were really you, you wouldn't have that. That's where it starts to eat away at your soul. It feels too good to fit in. Spending some time in the Psalms has helped me to change my theory of authenticity just a bit. Most of us think that being inauthentic means being fake. Richard Rohr, who's kind of a guru in this, coined the phrase false self. And now it's used all the time. That we have this false self we put up. Like it's a mask. It's not the real us that we show people. And we think that being inauthentic means being false, being fake. That the real us hides behind this fake us. But as I study the Psalms and as I've been reading through David's life over and over again, I've come to the conclusion that the opposite of authenticity is not false, it's half. Or part. Let me explain. When you are truly angry, just raging in your heart, and you come to church and someone's like, how are you tonight? And you're doing, I'm good, I'm blessed. You do that thing we do, you know what you do. We all do that. Yell at the kids all the way here and then you smile when you get here. Like, we all do that. And the thing is, I don't think that's being fake because chances are you are, you are blessed and you know you're blessed. And, and there's part of you that it, some part of your soul recognizes and feels blessed. So it's not like you're outright lying. You're just choosing to bring up part of you. I'm just choosing to bring up half of me. When we're, when we're feeling mean and we act nice, we're not faking it. We're just, we are, we are nice. We're just bringing up the nice side. We're not hiding who we are. We're just hiding our full self. I think most of us are too complex and multifaceted to ever need to be truly fake. We can just choose which side of us to show. We just call on the parts of our nature that allow us to fit in. And we make sure that those parts are front and center when they need to be. This is what makes authenticity such a hard target. When we're working hard to fit in, we don't really feel like we're being false. We don't feel like we're being completely fake. If we, if we see people acting a certain way and we act like that, we don't feel like we're being fake because it, it feels like us. And if we're honest, it is us. It's just not all of us. The word for this is integrity. If you look up the definition of integrity, the second definition behind like moral uprightness um, which was actually the original definition, it's actually changed, reads like this. The state of being whole and undivided. That's what they call 
integrity. We speak of a piece of steel having structural integrity, that it's a whole undivided, strong piece of steel. And really, when we think about the think about it in the terms of moral principles, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, that's definition number one. And even that, what we mean is somebody who will do the same thing if we're watching them that they would do if you weren't watching them. That's what we would call integrity, that they're whole and fully integrated. They're completely uh, the same person. They're not divided. So someone with integrity is someone who is whole and undivided. And the thing I love about these two pictures of David that we see in the beginning, this heart-playing minstrel and this head-chopping warrior, isn't that they represent two Davids. It's that they represent a whole and undivided human. That if we're honest, all of us have that tendency. So how do we respond to this? And this is going to be a little bit of a long response, so I'm not really going in early. But <laughs> Have you ever been in a fight with usually your spouse, somebody you're really close to, and you're going at it and they say one of those really hurtful things? You know, I've never respected you. And you're like, aha, I knew you were thinking that underneath there all along. And you feel like you finally got to see into their soul. Yeah, I get it. I think we've all done that. I've come to the conclusion that that's garbage. Like, if you think about it, you're in a fight, you get them cornered, they're feeling threatened, and they lash out with something mean, and you take it to mean, that's the way you feel all the time, isn't it? Like, I know you're usually nice to me, I know you usually take care of me, I know you usually care for me, but I knew you were thinking that all along. Like, that thing that you said when I finally pushed you in a corner, you know, far enough. The truth is, anyone who loves you also gets really, really, really frustrated with you. Anyone who respects you also despises you at times. Anyone who feels real joy in your presence can't stand to be around you sometimes. Because that's what it means to be human. That's just real. We all have that divided nature, that part of us that that changes one of my favorite parts of being a pastor is that people tend to talk to me when their lives are falling apart. I know that sounds sadistic, you know, that I like enjoy people's pain, but it's not that way. It, it feels like an honor to me to get to see beyond the veil, to get to see on the other side. Monday nights when I come up and pray and I pray for the prayer requests that people send me and, and I pray for the people that you're praying for because a lot of times people send me the people that are on their hearts. What I love about people's prayer requests is there's nothing fake. There's no, and I get some silly ones. I mean, what people, and people will come to me and they'll go, I know this sounds silly, but, and I never feel like that's silly. Like in, in that moment, I'm like, if this is what's hurting you, that's, that's, that's what I want to pray for. Like, I don't want to pray, I want you to send me, would you pray for world peace? Like, come on, I know you're not thinking about world peace when you're laying in your bed. Like, I want what's, what's tearing your guts up right now. People will be like, I know this sounds petty. I know with all the big things going on, but this is really bothering me. I love praying for those. To me, those are the prayer requests that are the least petty because it's someone saying, no matter what anybody thinks, this is what's hurting me right now. And when people share their junk with me, it never crosses my mind to go, aha, I knew it. I knew you weren't all that happy. 
I never even cried, or, or I knew you weren't as holy as you act in church, or I knew you weren't, you know, didn't have that kind of faith. Like that, that honestly never crosses my mind. Usually what I think is, this is, you know, it's amazing that all this happiness can come with all this pain. That all of this faith makes it through all of this doubt. That all of this holiness can break out of all of this brokenness. Like, what I see is integrity when people share their junk. What I see is, this is a full and complete human. Usually if, if all I get is happiness and faith and holiness, I'm standing there waiting for the other shoe to drop. Usually. I'm like, there's no way this is real. I'll wait till it falls apart and I get to see. And, I, and there's no part of me that, like, that feels whole. When we bring our brokenness, that feels like integrity. It feels like this is a whole person. Somebody who doubts and has faith. Somebody who strives for holiness and fails. Somebody who feels pain and still manages to stand up and feel joy. Like somebody who, who can be the whole person. If we look back at our text... At the description of David, there was one characteristic that David has that never changes throughout his entire life. That last statement. And the Lord was with him. This is maybe one of the most beautiful verses in David's story. When David is worshiping, the Lord is with him. When he's cutting off Goliath's head, the Lord is with him. Throughout David's whole story, the Lord is with him. If we could have one revelation tonight, that would be it. That the Lord is with you. All the parts of you. The Lord is with you. All of you is not too much for God. The good, the bad, the ugly. Esther wrote an excerpt from an Ann Boskamp book in Hannah's journal this weekend that she gave her when she graduated. And it says this. I think this kind of sums up. She belongs... Simply because, or simply by being, and that is enough. Her heart's large enough to make room for joy. Her smile's beautiful enough to light love. Her eyes sometimes glint with all of her too much. But they're like stars that are never, ever, ever too much. All the parts of us that feel too much for God are never too much. Even when they're ugly, even when they're painful, even when they're full of doubt and fear, they're never too much for God. God wants all of you. When you stand in this room and sing worship music, the Lord is with you. When you're shouting in frustration at somebody you love with all your heart, the Lord is with you. When you're depressed and you can't figure out how to keep going, the Lord is with you. When your eyes those moments when they open and you recognize just how blessed you are, the Lord is with you. When you're overwhelmed with hate for somebody that's different than you, the Lord is still with you. When you're overwhelmed with love because you're allowed to see somebody else through the Lord's eyes, He is still with you. If you live tonight as if God is with you when things are good and He's somehow absent when they're not, or if you feel like He loves part of you, but not the other part of you, then you're just not living with integrity. You need to be whole. Last week we talked about the scope of the entire universe and how big that makes our God. Well, He's also very, very small. 
He's tiny enough to go inside of you and see all the parts of your complex makeup. Not just the parts we bring to church, but the parts we intentionally leave at home. David said this in Psalms 139. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. I think as we wrap up tonight, if we could have one response to this message, it would be to believe that statement. That you are wonderfully complex. I think sometimes our idea of what a Christian should be is too simple. God has made you wonderfully complex. And sometimes it looks a mess. Sometimes, like David, it almost looks like multiple people. It's the same person who can stand in here and sing worship music and bless children and be gentle and loving to other people can go home and scream and rail and throw a fit and be depressed and be grumpy. and But to be whole, to have integrity, is to be all those things and to bring it all to God. Because that's what David did. He brought it all to God. We don't get David's cleaned up psalms. We don't get the pretty psalms. We get all the psalms. We get the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the, the praises and the battle cries.